Eric Whirl. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead, Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Oh, why is that, Sarah? Oh, because it's our show and, and not yours. And, and we got, you know, beautiful good stuff going on. I love it. <laughs> as we were just bantering pre-recording. We are. I mean, as you all know, we usually talk before we even record. So, yes, we're very excited about the show and big things happening. Because believe it or not, we're friends outside of this podcast. Which is why I think (laughs) I'm like, do I want to shit talk other podcasts on the air? (laughs) Because I was about to. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the vibe we're coming at you with today. Wait a minute. Hold honestly, on. Honestly, I think that that's fair for us. But you're right. You're right. Hold on. Because if it's your first time listening to the podcast, you need stop. to stop. Go back. Go back to the beginning. Start from the beginning. Episode one, Grumblethorpe to my mouth a little bit. Catch up, you know? Get the context. Be here in the present with us. I mean, by the time you get to this, it'll be the past. But you'll be ready to listen to it in the future and when it's the present. And then you'll realize when I say, do I want to shit talk about other podcasts? You'll be like, oh my God, that's on brand. (laughs) (laughs) And if you've listened to the show before, you know, welcome welcome back. back. First things first about that, because we are friends in real life and we do do (laughs) other things outside of this podcast that I think our banter is so organic and so lovely and a big negative point that I have seen people make online about other true crime paranormal podcasts is that their hosts don't seem to actually like each other and don't actually have that real chemistry and seem to like fall off um, a big one. And you know what? You know how I love this. If you disagree with me, come at me. Send me an email. The big one She's is like, at me, bruh. My favorite murder. People talk about how those two ladies about it lately. don't seem to actually like each other. And I'm like, wow, interesting. Primarily hmm. my thing that I've heard about them that... Uh, <laughs> Do it. I we're mean, doing I guess it. We're doing Email that. us. <laughs> no, just them, like, not letting people make fan art and make money off of fan art. That's right? Bullshit. That's them too, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> I'm already, I don't even listen. I don't listen to their show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Off of that tangent, uh, you know we're so good because we're best friends in real life. You know who went back and started at the beginning and has been emailing me about their journey? Who? Josh Hawkins. Oh, I know. And I know we, we gave him Josh a shout Hawkins. out last episode, but I'll give another shout out because... He did email and he said, I was listening to episode 30 and it is just so hard for me to listen to your podcast and walk down the street because I always start laughing and I laugh even more when I hear you, Sarah, make fart noises and grunting sounds like you're pooping and Stephanie exit on. And I said, if that is not our (laughs) brand in a nutshell, I don't know what is. If you're just discovering us today, we like to be bitches and make fart noises. That's us. 
Man. Well, and we were just talking about, too, like, we've been very lucky to have a lot of support on this show. Like, yes. more than we anticipated. 100%. And Sarah, I mean, I'll be flat out, like, honest with y'all. Sarah does, like, the business stuff. Sarah looks at all the numbers, all that shit. I don't handle any of that. I that don't was always the organi- We are Grace and Frankie. I'm Grace. She's Frankie. Oh, yeah. Totally Done. Frankie. We always knew um, it. <laughs> like, 100%. We knew it I'm always trying beginning. to get Sarah to do mushrooms. Um, <laughs> anyway. Like, <laughs> just like Grace and Frankie. We are Grace and Frankie. We are. What was I going to say? Oh, we were talking about supporters, and we were talking about people that listen to the show, and then Sarah told me that, like, since we've gotten to around the 200 mark and, like, above it, like, we've kind of, like, more than doubled in our weekly listenership. It's and amazing. that is fucking cool <laughs> please keep telling your friends about this show because yeah, you know it so only took us four years we have some awesome people that have supported us for a long we time we have fans in other countries it's amazing i mean we it give them shout amazing. outs all the time but like jasmine i'm so happy you're here i love hearing right from you amy every week. in the amy, uk we love hearing from you amy got that you know uh, i forgot the name of it now but a uh, top responder on instagram yeah, she got yeah, she got told, man. She's so, in uh she's in that Instagram number one spot. Number one spot. We are It is. You so know what? Thankful. I didn't realize it was such a competition up there. And I don't want it to be a competition. I want it to be a co-op. Oh, I want it to be a competition. Please fight each other. Sarah for wants me. people to fight for her attention. <laughs> I do. I just want us to all get along and be friends. See, this is and, Grace and Frankie. Grace and Frankie. And we'll, you know, we'll start our own <laughs> compound that won't be a cult. It won't be a but cult like it might be until a bit, it but is it a cult. <laughs> What'd you say? It won't be a cult until it is a cult. Until I mean, you know what? It'll be a cult that has you saying, I'm down with the cult I'm so far. I'm down with the cult so far <laughs> until you die. You're down with the cult throughout your life. Okay, that's our next merch, merch piece that we need. So what we need is we need a glass um, of Kool-Aid. Stop Flavor-Aid. It. But in the like in like red like bubbly Kool Aid letters in the in the glass, it needs to say I'm down I'm with the down cult, with so, the cult far. so far. I'm yeah. surprised we don't have any merch that says that. And my only thought is that maybe that's too triggering for some people. Is why we oh, don't I have I'm not. down with the cult. I gotta say it's like my favorite me quote. <laughs> it's my favorite quote. I mean, we've jumped on that quote, and I love that quote. It's a good one, man. It's a great quote. And, you know, just a refresher, if you need to understand what that phrase means, it's that I'm not one of those people that would be like, I could never be in a cult. From all the documentaries I've watched about cults, I'm like, if I've learned anything, it's that everyone is more susceptible to being in a cult than they think they are. We all could be in cults. We all could be in a cult. And two, like, when I watch cult documentaries, the beginning ideology, I'm always like, yeah, I'm on board with that. I would, yes. I would join that group. And for me, it's all about finding at what point in the cult documentary do you think you would leave the cult? Like, at which, but what point do you think that would be your, like, wake up moment and be like, I gotta leave? I feel like that's so telling of who you are as a person. Is like, I agree. At what point are you at? Uh, next time we're doing a round table, like, get to know each other fun game, it should be, at what point would you leave a cult? <laughs> 
Tell the and group. anybody who says that they would never be in a cult is automatically disqualified. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're automatically disqualified. You can't play in this game because you obviously have zero And that doesn't mean you win because you think you can't be in a cult. It means that you don't really understand the game. You're honestly probably so you in a cult play. already. You're already in one. You're already in a Because you cult. think you can't be. You're in the cult of ignorance. There we go. Found it. I finally found it. Sarah, are you fucking ready? <laughs> I'm so ready. I'm also I think we've got a great episode this week. I'm ready. My dog is snoring on my lap. So there he goes. So that might be on the audio. Get all ready. Right. You're welcome. Yeah, right? Listeners. <laughs> all all thousand of you. Or maybe, honestly, it might be our 10 listeners just re-listening to the episode a hundred times. I'm okay with that either way. You know what? It's quantity. It's quality over quantity. Like, the fans that we have are so strong. That's what I said. I told Stephanie before we started recording. I said, our following is medium, but mighty. Right? That's exciting. They're mighty. I love it. I'm All ready. Right. I'm you ready. ready. Let's go. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Stephanie. Hey, hey Leslie. Leslie. Y'all, Y'all ready, ready to, talk to talk about some ghosts? Sarah, what are you talking about this week? Well, I'm talking about a ghost. Oh, I'm so ready. And I'm talking about a presidential ghost. Oh, shit. Okay. Yes. Which one, girl? You want to take a guess? You want a shot in the dark it? Which one? Because I feel like, I know I talked about a few of them because I talked about Haunted you Washington. DC. Yeah. Well, he's not one that died in D.C. Oh. Is he one that died in Philadelphia? No. Oh. But it's another location that is associated with me, myself, and I. I was going to say, I was just going to say, is it JFK? Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew he was killed in Texas. In Dallas, bitch. <laughs> Sarah's like, don't you forget, represent Dallas, shooting JFK. Well, Dallas didn't shoot JFK. <laughs> and depending upon who you talk to. He wasn't to, shot by the city of Dallas. Well, if you go with the multiple shooter theory, then yes. He could have been. He could have been. Right, exactly. Oh, I'm so ready. We've talked about JFK a little bit together. Just like all the Well, I'm not getting into... To all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's too much. You're talking about his ghost. That's too much. Right? Um, Both of us have wanted to talk about JFK, but it's so much. It's such a big thing to take on. Honestly. Like... It's a a great conspiracy, y'all. What I will say is... Charlie and I went back home to Texas for Christmas, and on one of our last days, we had a little bit of time before we had to go to the airport, and I said, well, if you're coming to Dallas, you have to see our one claim to fame, which is <laughs> Dealey Plaza. And I love that Dallas's that. one claim to fame. That's the one. Okay, let me tell you Dallas, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind, and it better not be the TV show. I was going to say the TV show Dallas. <laughs> That doesn't count because that wasn't the even Cowboys. filmed in Dallas. Oh, the the Cowboys. Cowboys is the next thing that comes to mind. You're right. That's God's team. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, God bless Texas with His own with hand. His own hands. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting off topic. We're getting off topic. Yeah. I love and don't say the TV show Dallas. <laughs> well, of course, it's the TV show Dallas. I think I've said this before, but the TV show Dallas was never filmed in Dallas. However, the outside shots of the house and the land 
were filmed in Dallas and sure. were filmed on a property. And that property is where I had my senior prom. Oh, well, that's how it's always sunny is now. Like the like big yeah. external shots are shot in Philadelphia, but it's not shot here but it's anymore. It's not shot here. Yeah. Same thing for okay, the office. So, it wasn't shot in Scranton. Okay, let's keep going. So Do Dallas is third most famous <laughs> <laughs> thing, which is the assassination of JFK. Of JFK. So, yes, Charlie and I went down. We went and saw Dealey Plaza. One thing that I just find, I don't know, odd, interesting is while you're walking around Dealey Plaza, there's always a ton of people there. It's a tourist spot. But there's also still so many people there peddling their conspiracy theories. Not what I thought you were going to say. For some reason, I thought you were going to be like, there are still so many people leaving memorials and flowers. No, God, (laughs) There are still people there talking about the multiple gunmen. (laughs) Yes. And on certain days, there are still a group of Republicans sitting there waiting for JFK to rise from the dead. Stop. Because they think that. Do you not remember that? Like a few months ago, there was a whole group of QAnon Republicans sitting out on Dealey Plaza because they were like, JFK never died. He's coming back. See, I heard that about JFK Jr., but I didn't hear that about JFK Sr. It was both of them. They were like father and son, hand in hand, coming back. So... Here's my story. Okay. (laughs) And my story is someone's personal account that I got from Reddit. I did get permission. So this user, their username is Claudia Insights. So Claudia, the name Claudia Insights, plural. Like Claudia Insights riots by spreading false information. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Claudia insights JFK haunting her. Um, <laughs> so Claudia's story goes like this. Title. Thank you, Claudia. I Yes, thank you, Claudia. I had an encounter with departed, capital D, President John F. Kennedy while working at Parkland Hospital. Parkland Hospital is the hospital that JFK was taken to after he was shot and he subsequently did die at that hospital. Now, the section of the hospital that he died in has been turned into administrative offices and they built a different Parkland hospital years later. I know this okay. because I grew up in Dallas. Right. So she still works in old Parkland hospital. She has an office in the admin building. I'm going to say that out like outright. That way, if anyone comes in and they go, that Parkland hospital's not there anymore. How could she be there? Well, she's in her office. Back to Claudia's story. Deal with Claudia it. Claudia says, two years ago, right before COVID-19 became a full-on pandemic, I was sitting in my private office at Old Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, when I heard the very clear, very loud voice of former President John F. Kennedy. As I looked up, his head appeared right in front of me with a translucent body, and he said, In the end, all will be well. Don't you fret, but do sound the alarm, ma'am. At the time of the apparition, I was analyzing a report of ER patients and worried about the new trends I was seeing in relation to this new and relatively unknown coronavirus illness. 
I sensed that the patients we were seeing trickle into the ER would ultimately become a tsunami of patients. President Kennedy gave me the courage to sound the alarm. I sent an email to my VP and several other hospital leaders. I told my VP that I had a premonition and communication from my spirit guides that we were unprepared and that this virus would change everything globally. Damn, Claudia. Right? He knew that I was a psychic medium, so he alerted. For those in the know, after President Kennedy was shot in Dallas by Lee Harvey Oswald, one shooter, he was taken to Old Parkland Hospital, where he subsequently succumbed to his injuries. Turns out my office is less than 20 feet from what would have been the operating room where JFK died. It had been converted to a part of a conference room and hallway, and today a small plaque remains. I must have walked by that plaque hundreds of times and never paid it any attention until JFK asked me to walk there. He led me to his plaque. This incident gave me great comfort to know that President Kennedy was still visiting Parkland and trying to help humanity in spirit. This experience gives new meaning to a servant spirit. By the way, there have been many reported sightings of him through the years. And that's the end of her post. Okay, Claudia. So Claudia claims that JFK came to her and warned her about COVID-19 before COVID-19 really broke. Now, she's not wrong. There are numerous sightings of people seeing JFK in and around that area of Parkland Hospital. Now, whether that's real or not, take it all with a grain of salt. Sure. Yes, the man died there, etc., But I have to scroll down a little bit because there was a comment that made me kind of laugh. And then I'm like, is this bad? Should I believe them? Because I don't off off the top of my head. And this person commented and they said, this guy named Robert Monroe writes this fascinating account in his book, Journeys Out of the Body, where he recounts flying over the Kennedy compound in his astral body and encountering a giant astral security guard who confronted him and demanded to know his business with the president. So there are these theories and conspiracies going around that like JFK as a spirit is like still existing around and apparently has like a spirit bodyguard. I don't know. So that to me... If that is a part of the belief system, that isn't specific to JFK. Do you know what I mean? That person believes in all kinds of... No, yeah, that's not specific, but it's just... (sighs) Yeah, sure, why not? It tickled my funny bone. (laughs) It did. I read it and I was like... And this comment was like far down in the comments because I think... The very first comment was, yes, so that's where JFK is. The people in Texas are waiting for him and John John to show up. He's late. John John. Your your JFK impression really made me want to do a JFK impression. It's not good. It's hard. You try yours. It's hard. Because it's, yeah, you have to try and do like the Boston. Yeah. But I don't remember what your quote was, but mine is just like, you know, ask not what you, what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Take that, Boston. We've probably got 
somebody from Boston who's like, this is the most offensive thing I've ever heard. Do we have anyone from Boston who listens? I don't know. Send me Let an us email. know. Do you like our JFK impression? Do Let me know like how accurate it was. A JFK impression. <laughs> was that good? <laughs> I've. <laughs> you can say no. You can say no. It's okay. Oh, are you asking me specifically? I was asking the listeners to tell us. No, I was asking you. I mean, don't answer. Never mind. Let it go. <laughs> you had a second story, right? Or no? Yes. Okay. You mean to make up for that dumpster fire? Yes. No. No, I'm kidding. Because my next story is about one of our favorite things. Uh, it's also a ghost story. And it's about a, it's another college girl ghost story. Because we all know I really loved Barf and Barbara. And <laughs> I found another one. And I'm going to call her, her name's Condi Cunningham. And she lights herself on fire. So she's not the girl on fire like Katniss Everdeen. But she's the girl on fire, Condi? It's a question. So- I was thinking combustible Condi. Oh, that's good. That's way better than mine. All right. She's combustible Condi. Because you got Barf and Barbara and combustible Condi. Oh, my God. I hope they're friends. This is an Alabama. (laughs) They are now. We've introduced them. So we're not doing Indiana State University, but we're doing uh, Alabama at the University of Montevallo. Okay. Story goes, in 1908, these girls uh, were trying to hang out in their dorm room and have a midnight snack. As you do when you're a college student, February 4th, 1908, combustible Condi Cunningham, as her friends called her, and her friends, (laughs) as her friends called her just now, just now, her friends, me and Stephanie, her and her friends were hanging out in her dorm room in the then named Alabama Girls Industrial School before it became the University of Montevallo. They were making hot cocoa on a smuggled in Bunsen burner, which, you know, if you go to college, you are not allowed not to have a have Bunsen burner. Heat things. But everyone sneaks them in. Everybody does, though. Because you're not going to use the kitchen in your dorm room. It's disgusting. Anyways, suddenly the Bunsen burner got knocked over and combustible Connie realized why she had that name. Her nightgown caught fire. The frightened girl burst from her room, ran down the hall, her movement only intensifying the blaze. Her friends eventually were able to extinguish her and extinguish the flames, but poor old combustible Connie was too badly burned and died just a few days later. But of course, the image of poor old Condi's face is permanently etched in the door of her dorm room. Because if we've learned anything from this podcast, it's that if you die around wood, your image is going to always be in Oh, yeah, wood. yeah, yeah. Sure. No matter how often they try to clean it, like your image or your blood You're just there now. Your face is always be the wood. Sure. Always. Forever and always. Oh, every time. Every time. So apparently, Condi's fiery face appears etched on the door. The university has replaced the door many times, but the face would always appear. Finally, they replaced the door with a wooden one, or they replaced the wooden door with a metal one to finally get rid of the image. 
And people nowadays say, yes, if you go to that dorm room, there is one room that has a metal door. And we're pretty sure that's the room where she fucking died. Or she started to die. Messed up. Or she started to die. Some say that the door still feels warm to the touch. However, no one occupies that room. They don't rent out that dorm room anymore. But our final point about good old combustible Condi is she does the thing that we love the most. And she's often seen running up and down the hallways screaming. screaming. God damn it, Sarah. (laughs) The thing that we love most. She's screaming because she's on fire and she just this wanted a hot girl chocolate. Is on fire. <laughs> fire, fire. That's yeah, Condi. That's more accurate. And I wrote, um, it's the girl on fire that's not Katniss Everdeen. Condi Cunningham. Okay. And that's uh, the girl on fire at University of Montevallo in Montevallo, Alabama. And if you stay in that dorm room, chances are you might come across the screaming, fiery, flaming ball of a ghost that is what we call combustible condi. Cunningham. Just like you always wanted. I all I always wanted. I don't want to be like her. Anyone. Anybody. Always Any, wanted. What you always wanted. Her. People. And those are my two short but sweet ghost stories. Oh, baby, baby. I guess I should say short but spicy. 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 Fiery. That's it. That's what I, That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Nice. I stand by it. Well, before we move into my story, you uh, have something cool we for us. We do. We have... Oh, I shit my microphone. Let me pull up my notes. Did you say I shit my microphone? I did. Did you see me do it? No. <laughs> no, I hit my microphone. Gotcha. Did you ever see the Kmart commercials about shipping in stores? Where it was like, <laughs> they were talking about how, like, if they don't have something in stock that you wanted, they can always ship it. And they know, like, it sounds like shit, right? So they have this woman being like, I can ship my pants right here in the store. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> ship your pants right here from the store. And there's, like, all these people like, I just ship myself. I just ship the dress. I just ship whatever. And then the last one is this old man who's sitting in a bed. He's like, I just ship my bed. <laughs> This is a real commercial. I am not making this up. You, I'm surprised I didn't see it because that would have been my favorite commercial. Yeah, because I definitely there's definitely I shit my pants. Like I just shit my nightgown. I but yeah, the best one was the little man, right? He's like, I just shit my bed. <laughs> yeah, I will find it and send it to you. That makes Google me laugh. it, y'all. That makes me laugh Google. I shit my pants commercial way harder than I should. <laughs> I just shit my bed. But that's not what we're playing. We have a different ad. (laughs) We're not talking about shipping pants. Um, We are talking about another scary podcast that you guys should all go and check out. So I'm going to play their promo right now. Take a listen (laughs) and then go check them out when you finish our episode, of course. Hello, I'm Vanessa, the host of Hauntedly. I have loved tales of the weird and supernatural since I was a kid, and because of that, I created this podcast. Hauntedly is the perfect place to find listener-submitted stories, tales of haunted castles, dogmen in the Michigan woods, and everything in between. Find me every week, wherever you get your podcast, for a new tale of the paranormal. And remember, if one door opens when another door closes, your house is probably haunted. 
So go over and check out Haunted Lee. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm very interested in the Dogman story. Yeah, what? Dogman in the woods? Dogman in the woods? I mean, I guess it's better than Dogman in my house, because, like, that sounds like a mess. The Dogman cult. The dog. Down with the Dogman cult so far. (laughs) I love dogs. I know you do. Anyways, go check out Haunted Lee wherever you listen to podcasts. And without further ado, Stephanie. What are you talking about this week? I'm talking about a wild story this week. It's it's all over the place. I'm ready. I'm so ready. So here's where we're going to start, okay? It starts in the summer of 1956, okay? <laughs> all right. Summer of 1956. It was a great year. Great vintage. It was a great vintage. You should look for a wine or whatever. I don't know. But I'm assuming people die. Do people die? Oh. I mean, people did die that year. Duh. I mean, Sarah, people die every day. Someone probably just died right now while we were saying that. So, it's the summer of 1956, okay? And we're in Utah because, of course, we are. Because, of course. (laughs) Why does so much sketchy shit happen in Utah? Everything's in Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that when Joseph Smith found the golden plates? This story actually bounces back and forth a little bit. It goes a little bit between Utah and Kansas City for a little while, but then it goes south, literally. <laughs> I don't know what just happened to me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, are you okay? <laughs> I like coughed and sneezed at the same time. Kansas City, Kansas or Kansas City, Missouri? Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> I just need, you know, so that the listeners That's know. That's a good ask. And also Independence, Missouri, which is where the Oregon Trail started. But this is well after the Oregon Trail, because this is 1956. This is after so the, the Donners ate each other. Oh, yes. This is well <laughs> after the Donners ate each other. This is like, there's established, like, there's a town there called Independence, Missouri. Okay. All anyway, right. we're going to talk about 16 year A woman, she's a girl. She's 16 at this time. Sharon Elizabeth Hall. Okay. Okay. And Sharon Hall was dating a 22-year-old college student named James Kinney. That's illegal. I know. Well, (laughs) girl, guess where he went to school? Brigham Young University. Of course. I was going to say the Mormon school. Yes. Because James is a Mormon. These Mormons. So Sharon was living her little small town life in Independence, Missouri, And she wanted more than anything to, like, find a husband who was going to, like, whisk her away and take her out of Independence, Missouri and, like, go live a life bigger than she was – a girl like her could dream of in Independence. Same. Okay. Okay. So she's dating this handsome young college man, James. He's got prospects. Okay. He's a Mormon. And she's like, ooh, I'm going to get with him and we're going to get out of Missouri and we're going to go, like, live a life. Was she Mormon? She was not Mormon. Mm. But she was like, she I'll convert. Oh, okay. Right. She's like, I'll convert. Because I want to get married to you, James. And we're going to we're gonna get out of this town. I love you so much. Let's leave. You know who else said something like that? Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is this similar? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm jumping the gun. Please tell me your story. I don't think you'll be able to guess where this story goes. Oh, that makes me so much more excited. I know. It's going to be fun. So she writes a letter to James, right? And she's like, James, I'm pregnant. 
we need to get married. It is your baby and you need to get me out of independence, right? And he was Mormon. He was like, I can't just like have this baby out of wedlock. Like, I've got to marry her. We he did marry. not want to marry her, right? <gasps> but he was like, I'm going to do the right thing. And I'm going to marry her because I got her pregnant. And he took leave from BYU and returned to Independence where he married Sharon on October 18th, 1956. Okay. Okay. The couple's marriage license falsely identified Sharon as being 18 years old. Because that shit was illegal. Because that was illegal. And a widow. I don't know why she was claiming to be a widow. How could she be a widow if she was only 18? Right. Though she later refused to address the assertion, Sharon told people at the time that she had been married when she lived in Washington, which when did she live in Washington, to a man who later died in a car accident. And everybody's like, she's a liar. That happened. You a liar. But whatever. So the new couple held a second, more formal wedding the following year at the Salt Lake Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, because he was Mormon, after Sharon had completed the process of joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So she converted to being a Mormon so that she could marry him. Okay? And that was 1956. Okay. So by early in 1960, so this is four years later, James was contemplating divorce. He was like, I'm not happy. Partially because of Sharon's spending habits, partially because he strongly suspected her of infidelity. So she's taking his money and she's sleeping around. Ooh, girl. She's, she's, what's she doing? Was she ever? Okay. What is she doing? So he spoke to his parents about it, where he was like, I'm really thinking about getting a divorce and like she's spending all this money. And his parents were like, absolutely not. Like, you need to go to counseling. You need to get it figured out. You need to do whatever it is that you need to do to fix this marriage because you cannot get a divorce, okay? This conversation happened on March 18th, 1960. Okay. 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 But he was like, we'll get it. Like, she told me that she would agree to a divorce if I would give her the house, um, let her keep custody of our daughter and pay her $1,000 a month. And his parents were like, don't get divorced. Stay married, okay? Like, the Lord would want you to stay married. (laughs) Sarah's face, y'all. It's like, you can't see it. We're an audio podcast. But I am, both hands are up, eyes are rolled. Good Lord. Okay, what happens? Oh, my God. Does she kill him? The next day. (gasps) March 19th, 1960, at around 5.30 p.m., Sharon said that she was in the bathroom and from the bedroom, she heard her daughter, Dana, who was two and a half at the time, say, Daddy, how does this work? And a gunshot went off. She entered the room from the bathroom, found her two-year-old daughter, Dana, on the bed next to her father. Dana was holding one of James's guns a high standard 22 caliber target pistol. And James was bleeding from an apparent gunshot wound in the back of his head. Sharon called the police, but James was dead by the time the ambulance arrived, um, carrying him to the hospital. He was how you say dead. He was how you say woke up dead. (laughs) (laughs) So... The police got there and they interviewed her and they did say like she seemed devastated. Like she seemed like she was really like in shock, really upset. 
that she did behave like someone who didn't do it. She didn't miss a single day of her acting. She didn't miss a day. But they believed her, okay? Okay. And uh, so police were unable to recover any fingerprints from the well-oiled grip of the pistol. And they decided not to do a gunshot residue test on Sharon and Dana. I will say this was 1960, so the ease of a gunshot residue test was not what it is today, where they're like, let me just swipe your hands down, see if you did it. You're right. It was a more difficult process. And by the way that she was behaving, like, they really believed that she was in shock and devastated, and they didn't want to put either Sharon or Dana through the test. And she's white. (laughs) Yes. Right? Multiple people, including family members and neighbors, told the police that James had often allowed Dana to play with his guns. What? And in a test by investigating officers, Dana proved able to pull a trigger on a gun matching the one that had killed her father. And she is two years old? Two and a half. With no evidence to the contrary, investigators ruled the case an accidental homicide. The pistol that killed James was taken into police custody and never returned to Sharon, despite her efforts to reclaim it. Why did she want it back? She later had a male friend buy her another twenty-two caliber automatic pistol. Because that's her favorite gun. When the friend told Sharon that he had registered the gun in her name, she requested that he re-register it under a different name. (gasps) With the investigation in his death closed, James was buried, and Sharon collected his life insurance policies, valued at about $29,000, which in today money was around $230,000. Oh! On April 18th, she purchased her dream car, a blue Ford Thunderbird. You know, when I was a kid, I really always wanted a Thunderbird. <laughs> I wanted a Camaro. I really wanted a Thunderbird. I thought the Camaro was the cool car. I wanted a pink That or, um, oh gosh, what's the one with like, <laughs> what's the one with like the open back where it's like part car, but it has like a truck bed? Do you know what I'm talking about? Vaguely. Uh, is it an El Camino? That sounds familiar. Mm, yeah, I don't know shit yeah, about cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyways, so she sucks. Okay, great. So. What about her daughter? Oh, my God. So we Dana's are walking away from that story for a moment. What? Okay. Patricia Jones, uh, born Patricia Clements, one of six children born to Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Clements of St. Joseph, Missouri. After graduating from Benton High School, Patricia married Walter T. Jones, becoming Patricia Jones. He was her high school sweetheart. Walter enlisted in the United States Marine Corps shortly after their marriage, and the couple relocated to the West Coast while Walter served. After his discharge from the military, they returned to Missouri and settled in Independence where they're, uh, with their two children. By 1960... Almost five years into their marriage, Jones was working as a file clerk for the Internal Revenue Service, while her husband, Walter, sold cars. 
Despite his marriage and his children, Walter reportedly had a wandering eye. Surprise, surprise. On April 18th, Walter met Sharon when she bought a Ford Thunderbird from his dealership using some of the insurance payout from her husband's death. The two, shortly after, began an affair. (laughs) I, honest to God, though, I thought that you were going to say that the affair started before she killed her husband. I'm sorry. No. Before she framed her daughter for killing her husband. No. Am I wrong? No, this this affair started after her husband died. Because he she met him when she bought the car. Bought her dream car. Despite his marriage Oh, we already did that, sorry. <laughs> we already talked about that part. Despite it. Now he's in yes. this weird relationship with a murderer or the mother so, of a murderer. Sharon viewed Walter as a prospective second husband. But he was uninterested in leaving his wife, Patricia, despite the rockiness of their relationship. Okay. On May 25th, shortly after Sharon returned from a vacation, the relationship was quickly set on the rocks when she told Walter that she was pregnant. (gasps) And he was the father of her baby. Oh, no. Which, remember, that's how she married James. She was like, James, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. So she was like, I'm going to try that again. But Walter did not, not respond the way that Sharon expected. And he did not agree to afford Patricia. He instead ended the affair. On the afternoon of May 26th, mind you, this is 1960. So this is like still, the like this is just year. a couple months after her husband died. He's Sharon contacted woman. Patricia at her office. And she told her that Walter was having an affair with her sister. Stop. Not herself. She was like, he's had, my name's Sharon. He's having an affair with my sister. She didn't have a so sister, like, by the way. I, if I had a friend who was sleeping with your husband, but this is like just a friend who was sleeping right. with your husband. It's not me. It's like, how would you react? Not me, but my friend. <laughs> Sharon then met Patricia that evening to discuss the matter further before dropping her off a block away from her house, according to Sharon. Oh, no. Patricia... Never made it home that evening. As you say, woke up dead. According to her husband, Walter, he filed a missing persons report with the police the next day when she did not come home. He began calling people he thought might have seen his wife. He got a lead when he spoke to friends of Patricia's who all carpooled to work with her. They told Walter that Patricia had reported receiving a phone call that day from an unnamed woman who wanted to meet with her. She had asked the carpool driver to drop her off at a street corner in Independence, which which he had done. The occupants of the carpool had then seen a woman waiting for Patricia in another car, but they didn't recognize her. They nevertheless provided a description of the unknown woman to Walter. Suspicious of the identity of the unknown woman based on the carpooler's general description, Walter called Sharon and asked if she had seen or spoken with his wife. Sharon allowed that she had indeed seen Patricia that day, that she had met her to tell her about the affair. According to Sharon, she last saw Patricia where she dropped her off near the Joneses' house, speaking to an unknown man in a green 1957 Ford. Based on Sharon's admission over the phone, Walter met with her late Friday evening and insisted she give him more details about where his wife was. He later admitted to going so far as holding a weapon to her throat and, like, threatening her. Like, tell me where my fucking wife is. 
Okay. Shortly after midnight on May 28th, a man named John Bolditz contacted the police to say that he had discovered a body. Dressed in a black sweater with a yellow skirt, it was soon identified as the missing Patricia Jones. Oh. That, she had that been shot did four times wrong. with a 22 caliber pistol. The, the baby did it. Although the fatal wound was a shot to Patricia's head entering near her mouth in an upward trajectory, she also had one through-and-through bullet wound to her abdomen, two penetrating gunshot wounds to her shoulders, and a downward trajectory through her body. Powder burns on the hemline of her skirt, which had been raised to her waist, indicated that the gun had been fired close range at least once. An initial reports and investigation placed Patricia's time of death at approximately 9 p.m. on May 27th. She was buried on May 31st. When questioned about how he discovered the body, John initially told police he found the body when he pulled over to use the restroom. But the area was quite a distance away from the road. He then told police he had actually specifically gone to the area suspicious that the missing woman might be there. Because this was like a lover's lane kind of area. And he was yeah. like, well, maybe she had like a jealous boyfriend or something who killed her and dropped her off here. And they're like, why would you think that? Why would you look for her? Do you know her? And he's like, well, I go there with my girlfriend sometimes. And they're like, okay, well, you go there with your girlfriend sometimes? Like, make out? That's suspicious. So then he was like, okay, well, I was there actually with my girlfriend. Me and my girlfriend went to go make out. But when we saw the body, my girlfriend was, like, super freaked out, and she was like, just take me home and, like, don't, I don't want to tell the, like, I don't want to be involved, like, this is really scary, like, I don't want to be involved, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And the cops were like, can you tell us your girlfriend's name? Like, where is she? And he goes, no, don't worry, you wouldn't know her, she goes to a different school. No, when they said, can you tell us who your girlfriend is, what's her name? He said, her name is Sharon Kenny. (laughs) Walter, uh, so Walter, who had been having an affair with Sharon, and John Bolditz, both gave written statements admitting that they were dating Sharon. Oh my god, Sharon! Both agreed to lie detector tests. Sharon gave an oral statement to police, but declined to sign a written one, or to take a lie detector test. Of course she did. She was questioned again on the morning of May 30th. Uh, and Bolditz was questioned again on May 31st. The scheduled polygraphs for the two men were performed on June 1st, and both men were deemed to have been truthful about their statements. Sharon's brother Eugene was also questioned on May 31st, but declined to answer questions. Sharon was arrested at her home for Patricia Jones's murder around 11 p.m. on May 31st, the same night as the funeral. That same day... The Jackson County Sheriff requested that prosecutors consider a second charge of murder, this one for the death of her husband, James Kinney. (laughs) Finally! They were like, you know what, this seems mm, too similar. Police were able to rule out the twenty-two caliber pistol that had killed James as the murder weapon for Patricia's death because they never returned it to her. That gun was still in the possession of the Sheriff's Office. However, a man who worked with Sharon admitted to having secretly purchased a new 22 caliber pistol at her request in the beginning of May. 
Police, however, were unable to locate that gun in question when they searched her house, though they did find an empty box that they believed once held a gun. Sharon at first claimed to investigators that she lost the gun on a trip to Washington. Then she stated simply the gun had just disappeared. It's weird. I don't know what happened. I don't. Oh, my God. What? Walter was taken into custody on June 2nd as a material witness to the case and was freed on the same day on a $2,000 bond. Now, the initial autopsy performed on on Patricia was criticized by police and prosecutors who felt the recovery of the bullets and the testing of stomach contents should have been done because those things hadn't been done. Dr. Hugh Owens, who had performed the autopsy, argued that he had recovered one of the presumed three bullets present in the body, and that because the body had been prepared by an undertaker, like she had already been cleaned and embalmed prior to the autopsy, any chemical tests on the stomach contest would have been useless. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Owens did add when asked that he had not seen any food apparent in the stomach at the autopsy. Patricia's body was exhumed on June 17th in order to collect the bullets that had been left behind in the original autopsy, as well as to gather what samples of tissue and stomach contents were possible. They just left those bullets inside of her when they buried her? Right? She, I hope she is a ghost and she is haunting the shit out of her husband. Sharon's arraignment on July 11th resulted in a denial of bail, but the Kansas City Court of Appeals struck down the ruling days later based on the prosecution's reliance on circumstantial evidence. She was freed on $24,000 bond, which is the equivalent today of $188,976. After uh, there was a delay in her trial date due to her advanced pregnancy. (laughs) Because remember, she was pregnant with Walter's baby. She wasn't lying. She wasn't lying about that. Oh my gosh. So she gave birth to her second daughter named Marla Christine on January 16th, 1961. And she immediately taught her how to handle a gun. (laughs) That girl came out with a gun in her hand. Came out with, she'd call her Annie Oakley. She's pew, 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 pew. Although charged with both murders, Sharon was tried separately for the two crimes. Her trial for the murder of Patricia Jones began mid-June 1961, with jury selection beginning on or about June 13th, and the trial commencing days later with an all-male jury. Hmm. The prosecution was unable to firmly establish that Sharon owned or had once had the weapon that killed Patricia. Because they never found her gun, so they couldn't compare the ballistics. Though both Sharon's known pistol and the one that fired the bullets that killed Patricia were both twenty-two caliber weapons, Roy Thrush, the man who sold the pistol to Sharon's friend, had led police to a tree that contained what he claimed to be bullets that he fired from that pistol. And he was like, well, I, this is where I tested the gun that I sold to them, so these would be the bullets that would match. But those bullets did not match the bullets that killed Patricia. The prosecution... What did you say? Sleep? I was like, was he friends with Sharon? Was he, was also, he also one of her lovers? Girl. The prosecution rested its case on June 21st after calling 27 witnesses. Sharon's defense, which took less than two days and involved 14 witnesses other than Sharon who did not testify, 
focused on breaking down the state's claims of motive and means, arguing that she had no reason to kill Patricia and that the pistol she was alleged to have had owned had not even been proven to be the murder weapon. After slightly over an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury, citing, quote, just too many loopholes left in the prosecution's case, acquitted Sharon Kenny. Oh my god. Immediately after the delivery of the verdict, juror Ogden Steffens asked Sharon for her autograph, which she was photographed giving to him. Sharon was then returned to jail the same day to await trial for the murder of her husband. Which she's definitely going to get out on, because if she got out on Patricia, they're not going to get her for the other... I am shook. An autograph? I am... Oh my god. I'm sorry. Keep so going. despite her acquittal for the murder of Patricia Jones, Sharon remained charged for the murder of her husband, James Kenny. When jury selection began on January 8th, 1962, Hill noted that he did not intend to pursue the death penalty in the case. The prosecution's case rested largely on the contention that Sharon had been so interested in seeing her husband removed that she had been willing to pay for his murder, supported by the grand jury testimony of John Bolditz. So that's her boyfriend that, like, discovered Patricia's body. Bolditz, though nominally a witness for the prosecution, weakened his testimony on the stand during the trial by claiming that Sharon had offered to pay him $1,000 in return for James's murder. So she was already seeing him when While James was, was still alive. Husband. But he was also like, you know, it could have just been a joke. Like, I don't think she was like serious. Funny, like, I think ha, the baby ha. did it. She said she was 5,000% sure, but, like, I don't believe it. He said it could have been a joke, and the prosecutor was forced to attack the witness's credibility. So then it was like the witness they had, like, sucked. <laughs> Further prosecution testimony alleged that Kenny's marriage had been on the verge of dissolution at the time of James's death, and that Sharon's adultery had been a cause of this, that Sharon had known that she would collect her husband's $29,000 life insurance policies only if she were still his wife when he died. The defense, led by attorneys Hickman and James Patrick Quinn, focused on the circumstantial quality of the prosecution's evidence, noting that prior police investigations had determined James's death to be obviously accidental, Obviously. And that the jury was obligated to assume innocence on the defendant's part, no matter how unpleasant they found her moral character to be. The defense, too, attacked the reliability of John Boldus's testimony, calling him a, quote, poor mixed up kid who would sign anything. <laughs> wow. Kenny's attorneys also presented testimony from witnesses supporting the viability of the theory that Dana had shot her father including statements that guns had regularly been left within her reach in the family home, that she was able to pull the trigger on toy guns with stiffer trigger pulls than the weapon that actually caused James's death, and that she had often been observed pretending to play with fire with um, firearms. You know, I've heard of parents stealing the identity of their kids to open up a credit <laughs> card, but it is another thing to be like, to convince your baby that she killed her own father. Yes. <laughs> and then I would assume Sharon seems like the kind of person who would still take out a credit card in her daughter's social, like her daughter's name. Oh, she absolutely would. The trial ended with conviction 
on January 11th after five and a half hours of deliberation. Okay. In April of the same year, Sharon was formally sentenced to life in prison. She began to serve her sentence in the Missouri Reformatory for Women. Ultimately, after multiple attempted appeals, one stuck. Oh, God damn it. The motion was initially denied by Judge Stubbs in April 1962, but appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, which in March 1963 reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial on the basis that Sharon's defense having been denied adequate preemptory challenges during jury selection in the trial, meaning they were like, you didn't do everything you could in the jury selection to make sure that those jurors didn't know about that other murder that she was on trial for. Bullshit! And because of that, that jury was biased. Oh my gosh. Whatever. That appeal okay. went through. Oh my and god. Sharon and her children moved in with her mother and awaited the start of the second trial. A second trial jury selection went on for weeks, trying to find and sequester any jurors that may have that, that wouldn't have known about Sharon's previous murder trial for Patricia Jones. The eventual jury, all men, were immediately sequestered, but days later a mistrial was declared after it emerged that a law partner of the prosecutor had once been retained by one of the jurors. Oh my god, drama! Sharon's third trial. Oh my god. It was originally began to uh, it was originally scheduled to begin in early June of 1964 and instead began on June 29th. Assistant prosecutor Donald L. Mason declared that a jury selection that he intended to do death qualified the jury. Uh, so that's a process in which the prosecutor preemptorily challenges any juror that who automatically opposes the death penalty. And the jury selection, once again, took more than 12 hours a day, like, to get through. Because they Good went through so many God. people before they were like, nope, not enough. John Boldus's testimony in the trial remained contradictory as to whether he believed Sharon's $1,000 offer to have James killed had been intended seriously or not. But he added this time that after his death, Sharon had asked that Boldus not tell authorities that he had offered her the money, that she had offered him the money. A new witness, a female acquaintance of Sharon's, testified that she had once joked that the woman should, quote, get rid of her husband just like Sharon did. But defense cross-examination highlighted inconsistencies between this testimony and a similar quote the woman had offered at a previous deposition. For the first time at any of her trials, Sharon took the stand (laughs) on the last day. Please tell me what this woman said. No, all she did was, like, it was just to her to get up there to be like, I didn't do any of this. I didn't do it, but if I'd done it, how could This is categorically untrue. My baby did it. Look at her. She's a killer. The all-male jury deadlocked seven to five in favor of acquittal in the trial, resulting in a second mistrial. Oh, my God. Well, she's still in jail. The fourth trial was scheduled for October of 1964. However, in September, Sharon, still free on her $25,000 bond, traveled to Mexico (gasps) with an alleged lover 
Francis Samuel Puglisi. Leaving her children with James's father and traveling as Puglisi's wife under the name Jeanette Puglisi. The couple later said that they had gone to Mexico to get married. Under the legal terms, fun. under the legal terms of her bail, Sharon was permitted to leave the country, but her contract with the company that posted her bond prohibited her from leaving Missouri without written permission from the company's agents. Ooh, girl, you gonna get in trouble. After crossing the border, Sharon and Puglisi registered at a local hotel, Hotel Jen, again, as husband and wife. Sharon, saying that she had felt unsafe in the foreign country, bought a pistol. She's gonna fucking kill him. Which meant that the couple now possessed multiple firearms, having having brought one or two with them already from the U.S., on the night of September 18th, 1964, Sharon left the hotel without Puglisi. Because she murdered either, him. Either to acquire more money because the couple was running low or to get medicine that she required. She encountered a man named Francisco Parades Ornez, a Mexican-born American citizen, at a bar and accompanied him back to his room in Hotel Levada. I fucking According can't woman. to Sharon's account... <laughs> She went with Ordinez to see photographs he offered to show her, but he soon began to make sexual advances toward her, and she was forced to fire her gun at him in an attempt to protect herself. Oh my god. Sharon later maintained that she had had no intention of harming or killing Ordinez and had intended only to frighten him, but her bullets struck him in the chest and killed him. She's like, I'm so sorry, my daughter's been giving me lessons and, like, my (laughs) aim is just better than I expected. Responding to the sound of gunfire, hotel employee Enrique Martinez Rudea entered the room, Sharon fired again, and hit Rueda in the shoulder. Wounded, Rueda fled the room, locking Sharon inside, and called the police. Oh, good for him. Okay, so he's still alive. Police, rejecting Sharon's story, theorized that she had gone out that evening intending robbery and had chosen Ordinez as her victim. When he resisted her orders to give her his money, police believed that's when Sharon had shot him. Police responding to Hotel Levada arrested Sharon on charges of homicide and assault with a deadly weapon. Sharon maintained that she had not intended to harm Ordinez and that she had fired her weapon at Rueda because she feared that he too was coming to attack her. Police searched her purse, finding a gun and 50 cartridges. And then in the couple's room at the Hotel Gin, where they found two more guns and another supply of cartridges. Where's her husband, though? Authorities took Puglisi into their custody at the Hotel Gin. So he's alive. Initially holding him without charge, and later filing charges of entering the country illegally and carrying an unlicensed gun. That's fair. The gun found in the couple's room that night was later proven through ballistics to be the same gun that killed Patricia Jones in 1960. Hallelujah! Won't he do it? But, because Sharon had already been acquitted of that crime, she could not be charged again based on the new evidence because of double jeopardy. No! I hate that! Girl. I know. I'm okay, Larry. I'm okay. Puglisi was held at the Palacio de Lecumbera in Mexico City while Sharon was initially placed in a women's prison before being transferred to Lecumbera for her trial. 
The couple were arraigned on September 26th and held for trial. In October, Sharon's Mexican attorney, Igneo Lara, filed a recurso de Gampado, which is similar to like a writ of habeas corpus, asserting that the Mexican government was violating her constitutional rights by holding her for shoot for a shooting that she committed in self-defense. Oh my god. The request was denied, and both Good. Sharon and Puglisi were tried in the summer Good. of 1965. Good! Puglisi was cleared of all charges against him, but was deported to the U.S. Good Sharon was convicted on October 18th of the homicide of Ordinez. Despite rumors that she would receive probation and be deported like Puglisi, Sharon was instead sentenced to a 10-year prison term for the murder. When she was officially notified of the 10-year prison term and the sentence the next day, she asserted that she would appeal for her conviction. The appeal... (laughs) Mexican government don't fuck around. They don't. The appeal, rather than overturning her sentence, lengthened it. The three-man superior court, which heard Sharon's case, overturned one aspect of her conviction, charges of attempted robbery, but upheld the murder conviction and increased her sentence from 10 to 13 years, saying that her original sentence had been too lenient. (laughs) That backfired right in her face. Sharon was returned to the women's prison to serve her sentence. There she was nicknamed La Pistolera, the gunfighter, (laughs) a nickname subsequently adopted by the Mexican press. On December 7th, 1969, Kenny was not present for a routine 5 p.m. roll call at the Ixtapalan prison where she was serving her sentence. Her absence was not officially noted until she also failed to show up at a second roll call later that evening. Oh my goodness. The news of her escape was not reported to Mexico City police until 2 o'clock the following morning. Oh my god. A manhunt was then arranged, initially focusing on the northern Mexican states, due to the authorities' belief that Sharon may have been heading for the last known whereabouts of a former inmate to whom she had grown close while they were in prison together. The search also encompassed countrywide transport hubs and eventually circled back to the Mexico City area. U.S. authorities, including the FBI, were also alerted of of Mexican authorities' belief that Sharon may have been attempting to work her way back into her native country, but the FBI noted that it was unlikely to have jurisdiction in the case. Initial police speculation was that Sharon had bribed guards to look the other way while she escaped the prison. An unusual blackout had been reported at the prison on on the evening of and the approximate time of her escape. Investigation showed that a door that should have been locked had been left unsecured. Further questioning of prison guards and administration showed that oversight at the prison was generally lax, and it was staffed by fewer guards than it should have been. News reports of the time reported numerous theories about Sharon's escape, including that she had bribed prison guards, that she may have enlisted the help of a supposed boyfriend who was from Mexico City policemen, that her mother had been involved in the escape plan, that a former Mexican Secret Service agent had assisted in her escape, that Sharon may have disguised herself as a man to effect her escape. A more modern theory speculates that Ordinez's family had helped her escape and then killed her. We don't know where she is. The intensive manhunt for (laughs) was short-lived. By December 18th, the Mexican Secret Service and the Mexico City District Attorney's Office were both reporting that they were no longer involved in searching for the escaped prisoner, while the Federal District Attorney was reporting that the responsibility for the hunt belonged to the City District Attorney's Office. 
Investigators speculated that Sharon had already crossed the border from Mexico into Guatemala, mooting the purpose of a Mexican manhunt. They noted that she was fluent in Spanish after her years in Mexican prison, and she could therefore get along rather well in nearly any Spanish-speaking area of the world. Despite vowing to keep the case open and their investigation running until Sharon was back in their custody, authorities were forced to admit by the end of December 1969 that they had run out of investigative leads to pursue. She fucking got away. More than 50 years after her escape, (gasps) Sharon Kinney remains at large. What? Her whereabouts and ultimate fate are unknown. When when Sharon failed to appear for her fourth trial, which was, remember, supposed to be in October of 1964, a warrant was issued for her arrest. It is still outstanding 57 years later, making it the oldest outstanding murder warrant known to exist in the Kansas City area. That's insane. Sharon's status in the Mexican system also remains outstanding, though authorities have pointed out that at the time of her escape... Jailbreak was not a crime under Mexican law. So she could just do it? (laughs) If she were recaptured there, she would only have to serve out the remainder of her outstanding sentence. What do you think? Where do you think she is? Um, I think them helping her out and killing her makes a lot of sense. Like, helping her escape prison and then ultimately they killed her because then nobody would find her. Because they were like, they helped her escape and then she opened her mouth. And they're like, kill her. We can't stand her. Get they're like, yeah, her. yeah, yeah. We'll help you out. We believe you didn't hurt him on purpose. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then they killed her. I don't know. Wow. What about her daughters? No one knows. Her daughters just went with her extended family and hopefully. Right. She, before she left for Mexico, she left her daughters with her, her dead husband's parents. Wow. And wow. she was like, I'm going to go. And then never came back. But Dana, don't ever forget that you killed your dad. That you okay, killed bye. your father. I'm going to go to Mexico forever. Bye. And that's my story. Holy. That was a wild ride, right? Yes. I was like, oh you're never going to be able to guess because there's too many twists. That's so much. This woman. She, I I'm mean, she, she really and wanted Kenny to is, get out. Uh, K-I-N-N-E. Kenny. If y'all want to look her up. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah, man. That's all I have to say. And honestly, you know what? I think from now on, whenever I get caught doing something I'm not supposed to do, I've realized- You're going to blame the baby? I got to blame the baby. You just got to blame the baby. Obviously, the baby did it. That's what it is, you know. Blame the baby. No matter what. (laughs) That was my story. I felt like it was pretty good. I love it. No, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Oof. All right. Well, yeah. Tell us what you think, listeners. Do you think Sharon's still alive? I think she's dead, but. I think, yeah. I think she's dead. I think she deserves it. I think she deserves whatever she got. Even if she didn't die, like, when she escaped from prison, like, this woman. She's dead now. She would be uh, 82. 82 years old today. She's dead. If she's still alive. She's dead. Nobody knows. Mm -mm. She's dead. That's it. The baby did it. The baby did it.
Well, if you guys like our podcast, you know, we have tons of ways that you can support us. You can buy merch. You can go to our website at deadtimestories.com. You can email us at deadtimestories at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. But of course, the best way you can support us that costs absolutely no money whatsoever is to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere where you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, anywhere that it's like, I listen to this and you're allowed to give your opinion and rate it. Yes. Give it the best rating. Please. Thank you in advance. That's it. That's I'm it. Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dime Stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 